0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Beth Pickens about her book, Your Art Will Save Your Life. Welcome to the show, Beth. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here today. I wonder if you could begin by telling us about yourself.
1: Sure. I am an arts consultant in Los Angeles, California. I help artists move their careers and their lives and their practices in the direction of what they want. And I came to this through training to be a counselor. I got a master's degree in counseling psychology, um, but I really just wanted to work in the arts with artists. So that's the path I chose. And I have been um, in the arts for about 13 years, 14 years. And, um, about 10 years ago, I started this practice that integrates all of my experience working in the art world with my training as my, my counseling training. And, um, it's fantastic. Like I kind of just created this job. I made it up unintentionally with a blue ocean strategy, which a friend in the business world explained to me means you don't have competition. That wasn't even my intention. Um, so I have this really cool job where I talk to artists all day and it's amazing.
0: I want to circle back to Blue Ocean Strategy, but first I want to ask you what inspired you to write Your Art Will Save Your Life?
1: Sure. So it was all about the 2016 election. Um, December 2016, I wrote a pamphlet called uh, Making Art During Fascism. And the pamphlet was really responding to my clients and the artists in my life and my community who were really freaking out in a particular way about the election. I mean, 100% of people I knew were freaking out about the election and in a lot of pain and grief and paralysis. But artists were freaking out in this particular way. And it resulted in me hearing from artists over and over and over again, I need to quit making art and do something else. My art's not enough. I should be doing something more important. I need to go to law school. I need to change my life completely because my art is meaningless. And I, as somebody who needs a ton of art in my life, and I know what art does in the world and how crucial it is for healthy societies, I wanted to respond to all these artists and help them understand that their art was still crucial for a two-pronged reason. One being their art helped them have a life. It helped them process the human experience of being alive. And then when they made the work and helped to be in the world, it helped other people process being alive. So it was this crucial thing. And I felt this urgency to respond to artists. So I wrote this pamphlet. It was meant to be kind of a toolkit for artists who were uh, feeling really confused, overwhelmed, overwhelmed, and bewildered as to what to do next, which is what a lot of people I knew were thinking back in December, 2016. So I write this pamphlet. It really resonates with people. And my very good friend, the writer, Michelle T., who at the time was selecting books for Feminist Press? She approached me and said, "You know, I, I want to pitch doing a series of short books, like a hundred pages or less, for Feminist Press. That sort of survival strategies under this new administration. Would you like to do it?" And I said, "Oh my gosh, I would love that. That's incredible. Thank you so much." And. So that's how this book project with Feminist Press started. And that pamphlet was expanded and I sort of dove into my consulting practice and basically just tried to empty out everything that I knew about artists and what I was doing with them so that any reader could access that information. And that became the book, Your Art Will Save Your Life.
0: So the idea came up in 2016, And then the book was published in 2018. And right. here we are in 2020. And you could have written this yesterday.
1: I know. It's, it's, wild, it's
0: <laughs> so timely. You talk about, you know, people's political worries and their social worries and their economic worries. And that's what every news outlet is talking to us about right now. So are you finding that that this book is is getting a new life right now? I have gotten a
1: lot of people writing to me through my website or finding me on social media um, saying that they read the book or they picked it back up or they had it. Somebody give it to them, had given it to them and they read it for the first time and that it was really helping them with the movement for Black Lives and um, with the pandemic. Sort of these two massive things happening at the same time. And also my pamphlet, a lot of people started requesting my pamphlet because I send free PDFs of it to anybody who writes to me. So yes, it is unfortunately and fortunately an evergreen topic, and people always need tools for navigating um, oppressive systemic uh,
0: structures. And so we're going to get right into that. You open with a love letter to artists. That's the opening of the book, and I'm going to read a paragraph from that. Where you say anytime you feel overwhelmed by humanity's impact on people, animals, and the planet, or really anytime you think you cannot leave the house because the world is too hard, I want you to think about the art, performances, music, books, and films that have made you want to be alive. Think of how those artists like you probably felt overwhelmed by their lives and the times they were living in, but made the thing anyway. Your future audiences need your work, so you need to make it. That theme that you open with in the book runs through the book, and I would imagine is what your practice is heavily devoted to telling your clients now, yes?
1: Yes, that a person's art matters. Artists' work matters. It matters for their life, and it matters for the lives of others. It serves crucial roles in the world.
0: So I wonder if you can take us back to when you were young, you were a teenager and you went to the Andy Warhol exhibit. Um, And I wonder if you could tell us about how that impacted you and really in some way set you on your path.
1: Okay, sure. So I grew up before the internet, which for young people is probably as unfathomable as when I was a kid and my grandma told me she grew up before TV. I was like, what does that mean? What did you do? What did you look at? Right. But so there was no internet per se when I was a teenager and how you found counterculture, which is what we would have called it back then, how you found things were these really like happenstance surreptitious ways. And I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in a small working class town. And um, there just wasn't a lot of culture that I could access that felt relevant to me or resonated with me at all. So I had no language for my experiences. I had no language for feminism. I had no language for queerness. I had no language for like, I don't know, weird freaks. So I just was always looking for them, like wherever I could find them. And the Andy Warhol Museum opened while I was a teenager in Pittsburgh before I could even drive. I think I was like 14, 15. And... um, This was a really big deal because before the internet, Andy Warhol also wasn't as ubiquitous. Like his stuff hadn't been licensed out to every keychain or like pool floaty in the world. And so it was like this weird artist from the past, but he was from Pittsburgh. And I couldn't believe an artist was from Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh hadn't had its sort of art renaissance that it's had the past 15 years. It was very much a depressed steel town back then with a heavy accent that I was always trying to escape. So my neighbor who was a friend of my mother's was a high school art teacher and she was an artist and this really cool woman who would make art with me and like hang out with me and sort of mentor me. And she let me know that this museum was going to be opening and it was a really big deal. So I started researching it. And again, no internet. I, I, I must've read about it in the newspaper. I don't even know how. or maybe got a book about Andy Warhol. I know she would, she would, She had VHS tapes of Andy Warhol documentaries taped from like PBS you would lend them to me. And I would watch them. And that's how I learned about the Velvet Underground, which how would I have known about them? There was no Spotify, no iTunes, like you only got CDs and records at a record store. Um, so there, it was just like this whole underground world that was slowly being revealed to me. And before the museum even opened, I was obsessed. I remember my ninth grade speech class, the very first speech I gave as an assignment was it had to be an an information speech. We had to inform the audience. So I did a speech about the Andy Warhol Museum and who Andy Warhol was. And none of my peers knew, like nobody knew who he was. And we were teens from the city he grew up in. And so my neighbor friend mentor Carol, she said, I'm going to take you to the opening of this museum. And it opens at midnight, which was just like the most glamorous thing I'd ever heard of. And I couldn't believe my good fortune that I would get to go have this experience. And at, at the time, you know, like the weirdest stuff I had access to the sort of like most interesting things was like thrift clothes. So I wore like my weirdest thrift clothes, thrift store clothes I could find. I put together a look And we went to the midnight opening of this museum. And as an adult, I've read about this opening. And there were all kinds of crazy people there. There were so many celebrities. John Waters was there. All these drag queens were there. Like people I'd never heard of, but who instinctively, as soon as I saw them, I was like, oh, that's my family. Like, these are my people. I don't even know who they are, but I know they're my people. And I saw just wild, weird freaks everywhere, and I just felt at home. And we spent the next six or seven hours at that museum through the night, early morning hours, and it was it electrified me. And it was the most defining, important moment of my teenage experience that would sort of set me on a path, was the opening of that museum and having access to this world that was previously unknown to me, but was instinctually sort of my cellular ancestral lineage.
0: So there's two really important things for me as a listener that jump out of that story. One is the role of Carol in your mm. life. In the book, she's really a cameo. She's just very uh briefly mentioned. And yet as I read the book, I thought, wow, did Beth grow up to become other people's Carol? Mm. I and mean
1: the- I never go near children, so who knows? <laughs>
0: But as she saw and cultivated you, she gave you those tapes and and got you right to that exhibit. And those are sort of the things you want to empower other people to do.
1: Precisely. Yes, Yes, Yes. absolutely.
0: And then when you're talking about the people who were there. So Carol could have gotten you there a different day, a different morning, you know, when it was quieter. But she got you there at the time that, as you say, your people were going to be there and you were going to see all of these people you would never see otherwise. And in talking now, you describe them as the as these weird and wild freaks in a way, but it seems like what you're saying is they were free. They were free to express their art and themselves. And that's what you want people to be able to do with this book, to, to find their ability to keep expressing themselves, to have the ability to have that freedom and that voice come out, however they're going to express it. And one of the themes that goes through this book is the importance of finding community. Um, and can you talk about how artists can go about finding community and why, like you, they need that community?
1: Mm, yeah, community is crucial. And in the book, I write about I my theory that the three basic needs for artists are um, making their work, having a practice of just making work, um, refilling their coffers. So experiencing other people's work, having experiences in the world, and then having a community of working artists who want good things for themselves and each other. And community is when the lack of community is devastating in a person's life, which is a big theme that's running through my consulting practice right now with my clients who are, who are literally or sort of emotionally cut off from people and having community. The inability of people to physically get together for um, artists to be in practice, especially people who have any kind of performance-based work, to not be able to be in community physically with audiences and other artists. It has tremendous negative impacts on people's lives. Artists need other artists and they need audiences. They need the flow of exchange. They need each other for everything, everything from information and emotional support to money and logistical information and training to um, making their practice, like making their projects happen. A lot of people's practices are solo endeavors and many others involve a ton of people. But what what's true for every artist is they're influenced by and in conversation with so many other artists all the time, living and dead, consciously and unconsciously. So community... For everyone but just thinking about artists in particular it is vital so having that having a strain on that in 2020 is having profound negative consequences on people's lives
0: so what do you suggest um, for for people feeling that um disconnect from community and that that profound emotional toll what what are artists doing
1: well i recommend to people to turn their gaze to whatever is available. It can be very easy for us to sort of focus on what is missing, what we've lost, and to stare at that. And I encourage my clients to sort of move their gaze toward, well, what can happen? What can, who can I access? Who can I be in community with? And in what ways? So, for example, my clients who have proximity to people, but they're feeling really depressed. I'll work with them to devise a plan to actually just meet up in person in a safe way with other artists, one, two, three, however many people they can be around to have a physical, the physical energy of being around other people in your community. Um, And for people who that's not possible for maybe for geographic reasons, it's making a commitment, even when you don't feel like it to being in contact over the phone or video, but making a concerted effort every week to be in meaningful contact with other artists in your life, in whatever way is
0: available. And you you talk about that um, uh, in in the book, um, and you say one of the one of the things that gets in the way of community is hyper competitiveness, the hoarding information, the scarcity and the poverty mentality that keep our artists isolated and you say on page 68 the reality is that you need other people and they need you mm-hmm. um the image of the lone artist drinking turpentine painting masterpieces oblivious to the world around them is a myth mm-hmm. and then you go on to talk about how you know van gogh's brother helped him and he had other people in his life as well and and um and so your encouragement to people now is to not fall into that that scarcity despair
1: mm-hmm Yeah, to not romanticize some untrue myth about um, being alone, figuring out things alone, that other people are doing it by themselves. Nobody's doing anything alone. I I really like to break through myths for people by... Because I have a lot of hours with a lot of artists across discipline and identity and experience. And so... I have a really big sample size where I can disrupt people's thinking about what they think other people are doing. And I get to be like, Nope, they are not doing that thing. I promise you (laughs) they're not doing that thing. You're having a similar experience consistent with other people.
0: And you talk about, um, that as one of the two key problems that artists face. One was what you call compare and despair. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is perfectionism and that those two things, um, are myths that that there is a that there is a perfect that that you can attain perfect and um can you talk about those two myths and how they hold artists back and what you advise artists to do instead
1: well perfectionism is a way of never doing something it's a way of tinkering endlessly on a project. It's a way a person can avoid ever starting something because for a lot of us, our deep wiring, the very deep, deep belief, sometimes not even consciously so, is that if I can't do it perfectly immediately, that means I shouldn't be doing it at all. So I hear, I hear that come out from a lot of people. This idea that, um, if I, if the book, if the book draft isn't right the first time, then I'm obviously not supposed to be writing a book. And what we're missing is the fact that, for one thing, perfection is an illusion. There is no perfect anything. And whatever you think is perfect that someone else makes, they will tell you all the problems that they see in it. And anytime you think you're approaching perfection, like I write in the book, it just becomes this goalpost that keeps receding in the distance over and over and over again as you get close to it. So perfectionism keeps people from doing things. It keeps them from having the full permission to try and fail. And trying and failing is how all good things happen. And then, um, God, what was the first one? I went off on a perfection.
0: Perfectionism uh, is great. We can we can stay on that spot a little bit longer because you have this great example in the book of someone you call Maggie, and since you do therapy, that I'm not assuming that's really her real name, but so we'll call her Maggie, and um, that. She was stuck in her perfection myth. And for her, it was that she had to have this perfect studio. Mm -hmm. And instead, you gave her uh, the replacement mindset, something that you've spoken about just a few minutes ago. And in in her case, it was instead of finding the perfect studio, it was for her to find the next studio. Can you talk about that? the value of that replacement way of thinking to deal with the trap of perfectionism. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, again, anytime the word perfect or a synonym comes up in when my clients are describing something they're trying to do or something they're looking for, I like to pull that out, highlight it to them and unpack it a little. And talk about the fact that, okay, there's no, there's no perfect anything, but we can, we can, um, reach for some goals. So in the example of looking for a studio, we can talk about what are the things that are really important that are non-negotiable and what are the things about it that are negotiable and aren't that crucial. And that perfectionism also I can, I think leads people into a mindset of, um, right and wrong, that there's a right and wrong decision instead of just a next decision and that they're locked into something. And I like to remind people that you have choices. If you make a choice and you grow to really dislike that choice, you don't like that studio, you can leave. You can make a different choice. We, we get to have choices. When we remember we have choices, that is so liberating, just to remember we have choices. I think about this a lot with um, clients who are working day jobs or in careers that they really dislike uh, or in jobs that they just feel trapped in. And I'll encourage them, to just apply for other things, even if they have no intention of leaving their job right now, just to remember that they have choices. Because that is sort of a lubrication of the soul, just to remember we always have other options.
0: And that does lead into the, the other part of the question, because I I gave you a two-part and those are always the the hardest ones <laughs> to keep track of all the parts. So I'm sorry for doing that. Uh, the other part of the question was the compare, what you call compare oh, and despair, compare and
1: despair. Yeah. which
0: seems to tie into this topic of perfectionism, choices, uh, opening the mindset.
1: Compare and despair is something that floats around a lot in 12-step programs in literature. And that's the idea that when we compare our interior to somebody's exterior, we're always going to find lack. And that leads to despair. When we compare how we feel to how we perceive other people are living, we feel bad. And... Comparing two people just is never relevant because they're different lives. They're just different fruits. They, they don't really have anything to do with each other. Instead, I think it's useful to think about comparing oneself to themselves, who they were and who they want to be. And comparing despair comes up in the arts all the time. It comes up I would venture to say for all humans, but certainly in the art world and every discipline, compare and despair is a massive thinking trap. It happens a lot through social media. We're constantly seeing essentially marketing from thousands of other individuals every single day who are giving us a performance of what they want us to know about them or believe about them. And we all do this. It's, it's just marketing. Whether you're marketing despair or marketing outrage or marketing happiness or marketing boredom, we're performing something in social media. So what I find with my clients is artists will sort of, they'll, they'll see the performance of self on social media of other artists and then compare that to how they're feeling that day. And that leads to, again, paralysis, despair, paranoia, a feeling that um, I'll never have anything or whatever I have, it's not enough. Often compare and despair creates this trap of this thinking trap of no matter what you have, it's never enough. It's just never enough because someone's always going to have something more or different always. And somebody has something less and different because we're on this big continuum of human experiences and people have different opportunities and different successes and different failures and and different lives and, and careers. So compare and despair and perfectionism, again, two very big themes. That's why I wrote about them in the book. That's why I highlighted those because they come up so frequently in my clients' lives and they really affect their ability to make their work and to take up space in the world, to let the work, not only make the work, but then let the work be in the world.
0: Early on, uh, when we began speaking, you you presented a theory, and uh, I hadn't heard it before. So hopefully, I'll name it correctly. The blue ocean.
1: Oh, blue ocean strategy. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a business term for businesses who um, basically fill a niche that's unfilled and they have no competition.
0: So how can artists flip from compare and despair to feeling that they too uh, can create their own blue ocean niche?
1: Mm. I don't even think it's necessary. I I think I actually, a friend told me about blue ocean strategy, which is like, you didn't, without even meaning to, you created that for yourself. It was just unplanned happenstance. But for artists, I want, I would want them to think you don't have to do, there's nothing new under the sun. And at the same time, you are the only person who has your specific experience. And you're an expert of that experience. So there's no pressure to like create something new or different. Humanity is big and long. There's nothing new or different. Technology changes and it's the same. People have ideas and then you put it on the internet and you find out someone else has already done it. That's okay. That's just humanity. What's special and unique to each person is their lived experience and their point of view. And so that can't be replicated. So it's these two conflicting things that I think coexist. There's nothing new under the sun, and you are the only you under the sun. So rather than trying to carve out a niche, I'd say get to know who you are and find out what is your voice? What do you want to say through your work? And know and accept that it will change because you inevitably will change. We're always changing all the time. So your goal isn't to be different or unusual or have nobody doing exactly what you're doing. It's to try to get as close as you can to what you think and feel inside and trying to make that manifest through your work.
0: And you talk a. About- in the book about how we can have these two dissimilar truths at the same time, these two competing almost emotions and ideas. And one place where you where you highlight that is when you talk about how important it is, no matter how difficult the world is, no matter how disappointing certain things in the world is, whether it's the politics that you don't agree with or the the suffering that you see in other people that you can't change that no matter what you still need to find joy and yet in that chapter of the book where you say you need you still need joy which is written in bold you go on to talk about anger so before we can really start feeling the joy we have to talk about the opposite feeling which is anger, which you say is real and necessary and can be transformed into fuel. Why in a section on joy did you lead us off with anger?
1: Hmm. Well, I think anger is such a, it's such a real emotion. And so many people have been denied their full capacity to feel and express anger uh, because of their gender, their race, who they are in the world. And if anger can't be expressed and accepted, then it can turn into something destructive for the person. A person may turn their anger inward, and it could become depression, or it might go outward um, toward people that they don't want to hurt at all. Um, And I think expressing anger and sort of letting it move through you sort of sweeps out space inside of us to have a full, joyful life. I think if we can't have the vastness of all human emotions, then that means we're sort of robbed of the really wonderful ones. And, you know, something I like about the contemporary civil rights movement, the movement for black lives, and activists of the 2000s and 2010s is I see so many people writing and thinking and talking about joy, that joy has to be part of your movement and your life, that joy is what creates sustainability and that every person is entitled to feel and seek joy in their life because they have this one life and that suffering is not the conduit to long-term sustainable change, that if we are joyful in our pursuit of the life and community and world we want to live in, I think we can, we, then we can do that work for longer. We have a, we have much expanded capacity to do that work. So anger, it's like so many people have been told it's not okay for them to be angry or they have to stuff it down or there's really profound consequences if they express it. And I want people to be able to notice it, identify it, experience it, express it, have it move through them so they can get to all the other emotions on the other side.
0: This book really is about radical acceptance of yourself as an artist. And I think it's also really helpful for people who cohabitate with you who are not artists uh, to understand you better and your practice and why you need it. And one of the things that you talk about, in addition to uh, what we just touched on, which is the real deep importance of maintaining your well-being, um, is that when when artists are deep in their practice. And particularly one example was writers that we kind of have a very different affect than when we're not in that creating zone. And for writers, you call it spooky writer face, which I love. Can you talk about spooky writer face, please?
1: Yes. That was coined by a combination of, again, the writer, Michelle T, a very good friend of mine and my spouse, who's a writer, Ali Liebigat. We all used to run a writer's retreat for queer artists and, um, I forget, it was early on in the practice of, of running this retreat, <clears throat> we would notice that after we we had sort of like required writing hours, quiet time, because people were sharing space. It wasn't a big luxurious thing where everyone had their own rooms. People were sharing space. So we had required working quiet time, quiet hours where people could have space to write and work on their other projects. And around lunchtime, after that morning bout of writing hours, people would come stumbling into the kitchen to like get a snack and um or get coffee or water and I was always prepping lunch cuz I cooked all the meals and everybody looked like a zombie. It, it, people would just sort of it's like they were coming out of this world and into the present world. They were leaving a zone. It was so visible and so palpable and so Allie and Michelle Coined and, and termed it as spooky writer's spooky writer face. That that's what that's what it looks like when a person's coming out of the zone of being in their work when they're when they're leaving the world that they're creating in their in their project and coming back into the present. And it's wild to watch. I've seen it so many times. It's really special.
0: So that leads to what's for me a logical question, when you were writing this book, did you experience that zone and did you have spooky writer face?
1: Totally, totally. There were times when um, especially my my second book, which I'll talk about at the end, which was much longer. Um, yeah, when I would just sort of come out of, a, you know, sometimes I would sit down to write and it just felt forced and I was just doing perfunctory things because I needed to show up for the book. And other times I would really get into it and sort of fall into something special and go somewhere. And then I'd come out of it and have that that noticing of losing time or feeling like, gosh, that time went by really fast or, or look at the thing I had just written and, and not be clear about who wrote it like, did I write that? I I really noticed that when I read the book for my audiobook. there were so many sentences where I was, had no memory of writing it. And obviously I'd written it, but I had no memory of it. And I think that's connected to spooky writer space.
0: Did writing this book change how you deal with your clients and your practice? Because now you're, you're creating writer too. You're, you're not, In the early parts of the book, you describe yourself as someone who's not really an an artist, Mm -hmm. not really a creator. But once you wrote this book, you can't say that anymore. Yeah. Well, I
1: really don't identify as an artist. I write the books I write um, because they're part of my job. I do them for money. I do them for my career. And I write them so that the skills I provide, the services I provide can just be offered to more people than what my practice can stand. And I understand my my definition of an artist is a person who has a profound, deep compulsion to make work. And that when they stop making creative work, their life quality deteriorates. And that is a lot of different kinds of people. Some people who have big public careers, some people who make things that the world will never know about. But it's this It's this difference that I see in people who need to do it as part of their life and well-being, and then people who just don't have that need. Everybody benefits from creative expression, everybody. But artists, I think, are this special group of people who they need it. They don't just benefit from it. They need it. And when I tell artists my working definition and working understanding of what an artist is, they say, yes, yes, I feel like you understand. I feel like you get me. And I, I really feel seen and understood because maybe a lot of people in their life don't don't quite get that. And I truthfully don't have that compulsion. My life quality does not deteriorate if I don't write books. It's totally fine. I would not write books if I wasn't getting paid to write books. I would spend time doing other things. Um, but what it, writing the book and writing the next book did for me is it gave me a just even more compassion for my clients. And it gave me a a more profound understanding of how much space and time and sort of bubble wrap cushion an artist needs around their practice in order to get into it. That it's very difficult to just switch from one task into, okay, now I'm making my book or now I'm working on my practice. That a person needs some psychological cushioning around it. So it just gave me a lot more understanding and compassion for them.
0: And one piece of advice that you offer in the book Uh, is to get out of your own way. Um, What are some tips for how to get out of your own way as an artist?
1: Mm. I think one is let your work be in the world. Help your work reach people. Um, Make your work for one thing and then help it be in the world. A massive way people can get out of their own ways is asking for help. It's just asking for things. Asking for anything and everything and seeing what comes back to you. Learning to ask for things is a really difficult thing for people. It's for a lot of different reasons. One massive one being socialization. And my clients, most of my clients have been socialized not to ask for things, not to expect things, not to take up too much space, or to uh, anticipate negative consequences when they do take up space. So asking for things is a method to getting out of your own way. It's... It's, it's, it's relinquishing the belief that you should know how to do everything already, which you don't, you do that's not true. You don't have to know how to do everything and that other people won't help you or that you don't deserve it or that all, all the reasons that our brains tell us, it's not okay to ask people for things, but just asking for help.
0: It's part of that uh, mindset they come to you with because so many artists, um, begin in an outsider spot. Many stay in that spot of creating outsider art or being an outsider. Um, But if you come from a deep place of that, where it's intertwined with your identity, um, does that really make it even more difficult to ask for help or to know where you begin? Who do you ask for help? What help can artists ask for?
1: Yeah, well, I think artists, no matter their other um, intersecting identities, being an artist compounds the difficulty of asking for things because art is so devalued in U.S. culture. It's probably devalued in many places around the world, but it's definitely devalued in the in America, and so artists are bombarded with cultural. Micro individual community family friend messaging and then cultural macro messaging that art, that artists are like a joke, that going to art school is a joke, that working on your practice is somehow selfish or wrong or not useful. People get messaged this from the culture, from their families, from their higher education, from their friends, from their partners, from it's all around. People are told that art isn't valuable. And yet, people who are artists or who are in art worlds and understand and and the value of art know that we can't have a functioning world without art. We just we we can't. We we would have under-functioning people for one thing. And so, no. Again, no matter their a person's intersecting identities and how they were socialized, there's also this extra layer of socialization as an artist, that even if a person had lots of love and support from their family early on and went to art school and had really positive experiences, they're still being socialized in a larger culture that tells them art is a joke or being an artist is a punchline and it's not a real job. And the reality for most artists is that it's not their paying job. They may make some money from it. They may never make any money from it. Artists are the only people I know who work other jobs in order to do the job they really want to do. It's a very weird um, labor situation in that way. It's very unique.
0: It would be interesting uh, for listeners to attempt to get through a day without art during the pandemic. Uh, the but- they will find this podcast at various points in their life. So they may not be listening to it during the pandemic, but at a time when you are isolated, attempting to get through an entire day without any form of art would be, um, I think, an interesting challenge because as you say, we're conditioned in a way to think that we don't have art in our lives, that it's, it's not valuable and it's um, optional. And yet everyone I know is reading more books, is listening to more music, is catching up on their whole Netflix queue, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, you can just keep adding in. There are people becoming sidewalk chalk char- artists. Uh, there uh, there was a challenge to recreate uh, famous uh, paintings in your home and send those uh, photos that you took into art museums. that mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that art has been saving everyone's life during the pandemic in, in some at least some small way. I, I don't want to um, trample on what the medical community is doing, um, but it's having, I think, a profound influence now on how people are surviving and coping and managing. Do you think that's bringing the awareness of art more to people's forefront? Do you see a shift occurring?
1: Well, if it is, it's it's certainly not manifesting in any structural way. Artists are suffering financially exponentially worse than people in other sectors um, because artists are so often working in sectors that have been obliterated during this financial collapse. So individuals may appreciate or sort of have an uptick in their usage. But it, it, it's sort of parallel to what I observe in U.S. culture is we demand content But we don't usually want to support the living artists who are making the content. And museums are a great example. I've worked in museums. I know a lot of museum workers, and they are very troubling institutions. So institutions need art. That's part of their mission. They have to show art to the public to implement their mission but getting them to support the living artists making work is often a battle within those institutions. Like getting people real pay and real support is a battle. Um, so people want content, but they don't want to pay for it. It's it's like we want all of this stuff, but we don't want to think about the lives of the artists who are creating the things that we want to consume. So I think there may be an uptick but I wonder if it will translate to any material change in artists' lives at any kind of meaningful structural level.
0: The book in many ways is the serenity prayer for artists. That's a note that I made to myself when I was reading it, that there are things you must accept and things you must change. You say on page 34. Um, and that. The book itself is a workbook for artists to strengthen their practice, to work on their mental well-being, to take steps towards the kind of success that they want. Um, do you see this book in a way as a serenity prayer for artists?
1: Um, probably, because everything I say, there's serenity prayer at the bottom of it. You know, a lot of the wisdom that I spout in the world, it's not from me. You know, again, I don't think there's anything new under the sun. So, everything I write is a collection. It's me sort of scooping up the collected wisdom from many disparate parts of the world and ways of being and learning. And so the serenity prayer, just being such a cornerstone of all 12-step programs, that's a cornerstone of my own thinking. So it's something that absolutely is going to come up with all my clients all the time.
0: And in the book, early on on page 28, you, you say, start exactly where you are. Um, Is that still the advice you're giving artists right now?
1: Yes, absolutely. What, Where you are, who you are, what you are today is enough. And you can begin. You don't have to wait to be different or wait for different conditions or wait and wait and wait for something else. I always want people to just start now with who they are, what they have, where they are. That you are enough. You have enough. You do enough. You can begin anything you want right now.
0: That's a really important message, especially because we got kind of a downer there about what the future uh, for paying for art might look like and the struggles that artists are having right now, which is very real. So many are part of the gig economy, which is just so hard hit by this. And so many have jobs that don't fall within the... uh, guidelines for how you can file for the unemployment, right? So many can't provide the documents that those cumbersome uh, filings require. And and there is a lot of financial um, pain Mm -hmm. in the art community now, even as many of them are finding that their work is suddenly being discovered um, on social media. um, Things are being uploaded onto platforms that that hadn't been put up because people are hungry for content right. even as you say the names of the artists aren't known the, right. the names of the, the screenwriters the names of the creators and the, the thinkers behind all this aren't necessarily known even when the um, when the art is being realized and shared and appreciated yeah. um,
1: what we can never forget is disaster capitalism is at work so who's making money right now well platforms for one thing. So the artist might not be making any money, but Facebook is making tons of money off of Instagram. (laughs) You know, like these platforms are making a killing off of the pandemic because it's disaster capitalism at work.
0: So I like to make sure that people get a chance to talk about what's their favorite part of the book. So you You've had a few years to sit with this book and and um, see how it resonates with your community and and with the people who are reaching out to you. And um, what is your favorite part? Oof.
1: That's hard. I mean, after a, I don't know other writers' experience, but after writing a book, it's sort of horrifying. and anytime I have to look at it, I'm like, ugh. Um, <laughs> it's sort of painful. And I know that from my clients, it takes a while for their old work to be something they really love and value. It takes some time. So maybe in a few years, I'll be like, this book's amazing. Um, but I, what do I like about it? What are my favorite part? A, a thing that I draw on a lot is, um, lists of things for people who are in art school I wrote that list of advice for BFA and MFA students. I wrote that because I teach BFA and MFA students at CalArts in Los Angeles. And I wanted to inoculate against a trend I see in people who go to art school for undergraduate or graduate studies. And that is a sort of floundering and depression and confusion that follows graduation and I really wanted to find methods for inoculating individual artists from that dip after they graduate. I wanted them to more smoothly transition out of school and into their lives as working artists. Because I think when you come out of school in in probably many sectors, definitely art, but many other sectors, there's kind of a a cold bucket of water that gets thrown on you when you realize... I'm leaving an environment where my thinking and my doing were really important, and now I'm in the world where I have to justify who I am again. It's very difficult to go from an environment in which um, you're treated as you're treated and seen as who you want to be as this artist in the world, and then back into regular life outside of art school where people don't even know that about you. And again, it might be it might be a punchline. Um, So that was something that was really important to me. I I took out an essay in the book during the editing um, process. I decided I didn't want in there. And I thought about what do I want to put in here that would be really useful to maybe another community of readers. And I decided to focus on people who were in art school. And
0: that same transition or at least a similar one happens when you leave uh, an art residency or a fellowship, or you've been in an art colony Mm -hmm. and and you go back. I know I had that experience where I was at one and it's called the Malay colony. Mm. And it was fabulous to be there. And they, they want you to sign the doorway of your uh, studio. And I saw all those names that were signed there and I did not have the whatever, to put my name up there. Uh, and and I think that's probably the world that I was in right before I arrived there and the world I knew I was going back to. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that feeling you have while you're in a community that values you is nourishing and sustaining, but you know you're going back into a world where that's not quite so. So in that section where you're giving those tips to the art students, which I uh, suggest also helps those of us who've gone to art colonies or who are going to be going back to some, what, what are a couple that, that listeners could take away today?
1: How to transition. You mean? Yeah. I think, well, community, 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 other people can help you do anything. So when you're leaving an environment where you are, your primary identity is as artist, it's important to have people in your life who, again, that's one of your primary identities. That's what they see when they look at you. And so having a a robust community of other artists, again, working artists who want good things for themselves and other people, not people who are hoarding information and um, don't want anyone to succeed, but people who are working and want good things for everyone. So other people, having people who can reflect you as an artist back at you will be a lifesaver. And I think prioritizing your practice in whatever way is available to you, whatever time is available or not available to you right now, scale your priority to that. So for example, my clients who have their children at home and aren't going to school, they're finding it very difficult to carve out time and then protect it from their spouses if they have spouses and their kids. Because their kids are just always around and they're overseeing school no matter how old the child is. They just don't have the same outlets for their kids to be other places. So in the case of my clients who are parents, we talk about what are different solutions for them to have even a small protected bubble so that they know they're communicating to themselves. They're not abandoning this part of themselves. Um, I've been giving my clients special pandemic homework ever since the quarantine began which for me was almost, it was like five months ago this week. Um, And I ask my clients to touch on five things every day, unless they're a parent, in which case they have a week. But for everyone else, it's every day. I ask them to do something for their body, something for their emotional and spiritual interior, something for their home where they're quarantined. Something for the relationships that they're quarantined with, if they're quarantined with people. And if not, if they're alone quarantining, then the closest proximity relationships. And then the last thing is something that connects them to being an artist every day. That's not necessarily making art every day. Some days it might be laying on the floor, or listening to music and headphones. Another day, it might be a conversation with another artist. Another day, it might be looking at art books that you've had forever and haven't looked at. But it's just cat- turning your gaze toward one action that communicates to the self, I will not abandon the part of myself who is an artist.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. And I'm so glad that it's recorded so people can play that you know, to remind themselves if they need to, as often as they need to. Um, And I'm going to read one little section of the book where it it dovetails nicely into that. Uh, You you say, you are not alone. You have what you need for your life, for art, and for justice. Stay with your creative path, trust your vision, and know that your contributions will matter to someone else. Beth, in the few minutes that we have left, will you tell us about what you're working on now?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, I have really fun things cooking up. Um, My next book, which was written before the pandemic, comes out in the spring, next spring of 21. And it's called Make Your Art No Matter What, Moving Beyond Creative Hurdles. And it's being published by Chronicle Books. And it is 12 chapters, each chapter doing a deep dive into one topic that affects artists' lives. Um, Everything from employment to money to time, to other people, to grief, to thinking and feeling. So it's 12 chapters, doing a deep dive into 12 different topics. And I also am recording a podcast that's going to come out in September with my good friend, Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs, who, among other things, is a podcast producer. And this is going to be a short form series of advice for artists. Just again, short podcasts going into one topic each per per, per, uh, episode. And then the next thing that's going to be rolling out this fall is a, is a um, membership program that people can participate in that includes um, unreleased special content from me and a monthly Zoom gathering where we work on things that are going on in artist members' lives and help them move their projects and their careers in the direction they want. So it's sort of making my services more available to more people. And that'll all be coming out this fall and the book will be coming out this
0: spring. That sounds amazing. And I want you to please come back when your book comes out this spring and let's keep this conversation going. I'd love to, uh, absolutely. Thank you, wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Beth, and telling us about your book, Your Art Will Save Your Life. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.